man, just one glimpse, one glimpse of him in glory will the toils of life repay. What an incredible thought. And that leads us right into this morning's text. Uh, this is from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the parent the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We are glad to have you today. Our kids can be dismissed at this time with programming down the hall for them. And to the rest of you, welcome to uh, the 9 o'clock, which might be the 10 o'clock service today. I don't know, whichever way you want to look at that. Um, but I do know that on this day, uh, for some reason, that extra hour of sleep turns our laugh gene off. So I'm not even going to try to be funny today, okay? We'll just go with that. We are in a series on hope, shaped by hope. And what we're doing is we're looking at some of the great passages of Scripture and we're digging in a little to why they give us hope as Christians. And here's the reason. Because what you believe about tomorrow shapes your life today. What you believe about tomorrow shapes your life today. I want to show you how incredibly important hope is to the way in which you live your life uh, by this. I want you to imagine that there are two women. They're both hired by a company to do a certain task, and they do this certain task eight hours a day. They're both put into different rooms, but those rooms are identical. They have the same climate. They have the same lighting. They have the same humidity. They're given exactly the same job to do. Maybe it's to assemble a widget or something like that. It's not particularly an interesting job, but that's the job, to assemble this widget, widget and then another one and then another one for eight hours a day. And so they have the same job, they have the same situation, they have the same circumstances in every way. Here's the one thing that's different. The first woman is told this, at the end of 12 months of work, you will be paid $15,000. The second woman is told, at the end of 12 months of work, you will be paid $15 million. Now, assuming that they keep quiet about their respective salaries, what do you think it's like in the lunchroom for those two women? I can tell you, it's easy. As she's pulling the box with her name on it out of the fridge, the first woman says this, man, this is tedious, eight hours. Eight hours doing the same thing 
over and over and over, and she looks at everybody else in the lunchroom. Don't you think this is boring? I'm not sure how much longer I can do this. She's getting $15,000 a year. The other woman who knows that a $15 million payday is coming, what do you think she's saying? You know what? I'm kind of fine with my job. I I really don't think it's so boring. I mean, yeah, it's boring, but I mean, it's okay. It's all right. There is absolutely nowhere else that I would want to work. Now, what's the difference in their attitude towards their work? You know, you know it, right? These two women are experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways because of their expectations about their future. Their future hopes, what they believe about the future is completely shaping how they are interpreting and experiencing their present moment. Our culture right now is probably the very first culture on a widespread scale to say this to us. When you die, there's nothing. There's nothing. It says, we are going to employ you in this game of life, and we're not even going to give you $15,000 for playing it. We're going to give you nothing. At the end of your life, for all of your labors, zilch, for all of your work in life, death will come, and then just blackness, there's nothing at the end, and that's what a large portion of our world believes. And we're the very first culture that has ever said, no matter what you do in this life, it won't matter when you die. No matter what you do today, it doesn't on one hand pay off in the end or on the other bring punishment in the end. Your tomorrow holds nothing, so today does not matter. Now, as every future expectation does, that kind of outlook has a profound impact on people as they live their lives, right? That kind of outlook has an impact on joy. It has an impact on integrity. It has an impact on love and commitment and motivation. There's a psychologist named Martin Seligman, and he gives what he believes to be the underlying cause of depression. Uh, Stats say that one in 10 of us right now struggle with major bouts of depression. Right now, there are 25 million Americans that take antidepressants. That has increased 60% over the last decade. The highest rates of depression right now are found in 12 to 25-year-olds. Why all of that depression? And Seligman says this, that depression comes with the belief that your actions will be futile. In other words, Whatever you do today, it's not going to matter tomorrow. And what is that but a loss of hope? People have figured out that just going through life and making the widget gets them nothing in the end, not even $15,000, and they are living out of that future, and it looks like depression, and it looks like hopelessness. But we are hopelessly hope-shaped creatures. That's what we are. We need hope desperately. It shapes us more than we will 
ever understand. And so here's the good news today, okay? This is why we as believers come and gather together. As believers, we are not like the first woman. We're like the second one. We know that we have a payday coming in the future that changes the game in the lunchroom today. And what is that million-dollar payout that we have coming? It is this. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Right. I told you that last week and this week would be kind of Easter-ish sermons, and that's true. Our text in 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most famous passages uh, all through that chapter about the resurrection that we have to look forward to, and it teaches us more about the resurrection of Jesus that awaits us than than any other chapter in Scripture. And today, we're just taking those last few lines of that whole chapter that Paul writes, and I want to show you the future that we have in store because Jesus walked out of the tomb. This future that we have um, makes that one and a half, what was it, one and a half billion dollar Powerball? It makes that look like a gum wrapper. That's what we have. Here's what we have to look forward to. Number one, uh, a death that's peaceless. Here's the way Paul will write it. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks here about the sting of death. And the word Paul uses is a word that is used to describe the sting of bees or scorpions or wasps, something with a stinger that delivers a poisonous sting. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been stung like by something like that. There's probably a lot of stories around the room of being stung by something poisonous. Here's my story. Um, there it is. That's like four or five bee stings to the face. And uh, I was trying to smile really big in that picture. Uh, and all you need is the picture. Stinging things torture people, okay? But, but the sting itself, it, it's why I had to grow the beard, really. <laughs> See, I told you the laugh team would just shut off. That, that was funny. Come on. Um, so, but the sting itself is not usually the thing that hurts people or sends you into shock or kills you. It's the poison that's delivered in the sting that actually does the damage. The sting just tells us that the poison is present. It tells us that the hurt is coming. The bee sting, really, I can attest, is not too horrible. It's the puffy face and the eyes that swelled shut for the next five days. That's the real torture. And so, each sin we fall into in this life has its own troubles. But beyond that, every time that we sin in this life, we are also reminded then of what's coming because of that sting. The poison is coming, and one day this poison will do its work completely, and the end result of our sin, of not being able to live rightly 100% of the time, the end result is death. Death. So what does Paul say here? He says, now we have victory over death, through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the resurrection rids us of this poison that can kill us. The resurrection is the antidote. Now death cannot kill you because its stinger is gone. Not terribly long ago, I did the funeral of a man named Kenny, and some of you will remember uh, Kenny because he had a zoo. 
Uh, yeah, right, right here, some of you may not have been around for this long, but right here in Fort Scott, there was a zoo, and Kenny was the reason that there was a zoo, and he had all kinds of animals, and nothing was really off limits except snakes. He did not like snakes, and all the people said, amen, yes. One of the main uh, attractions at the zoo were his lions. He loved his lions. He would literally walk his lions around on a leash like a dog. Uh, they had the sharp teeth that, uh, that lions are supposed to have, uh, but they were like pets to Kenny. And so Kenny one time had a college kid who came to visit the zoo and just hang around so that he could learn from Kenny. And one day, while this kid was observing all the stuff at the zoo, a lion was out of the cage and somehow clamped down with his teeth on this kid's arm, okay? Um, now, Kenny did not panic around his animals, not even the lions. He was actually comfortable enough with lions to actually put his head in their huge open mouths. He, he wouldn't think a thing about that. He would actually take his lions out with him on errands. So one time he's at the grocery store and he has a lion with him who's in the, the car, the seated car, while Kenny is inside the grocery store and a lady comes walking by and looking over her shopping list and just at the right moment, she's even with the window of the car, this lion sits up and looks out the window. I think it may have even roared. And you can imagine this lion, the whole face filled the window, right? And that, it, that was horrific for this lady. She threw her uh, shopping list up in the air. She started screaming at the top of her lungs. Now the lion was harmless in the front seat, but there's no way that this lady was ever going to believe that because why? Because lions have teeth. They have teeth. And so here's a college kid with a lion trying to make lunch out of his arm and he's having a similar but more tragic meltdown than the lady in the parking lot. And Kenny just calmly walks up, distracts the lion, gets him to give up the arm, and leads him back into the tent. When a lion has teeth, it tends to get your attention. What Paul is saying here to us is that the lion of death may look intimidating, but he's lost all his teeth. And all death can do now is gum you a little. That's it. So what that means is that there should be no fear in us when it comes to this great enemy that we've, that we've defanged now. Death used to be an executioner, but he is not an executioner anymore. In fact, Paul goes one step further here. He says, since death is toothless, Paul isn't just afraid of, of death, but he actually taunts death. He says, death, you've Lost. Now, you've been to a basketball game, right? What's your favorite cheer at the end? Uh, here's, here's, here's a common one that I hear um, right now. I believe that we just won. I believe that we just won. I believe that we just won, right? Have you been in there? You've been to a basketball game, right? That's what Paul's doing here. That's the flavor of the text. This is Paul's version of that to our opponent, death. And so Paul can taunt death, and it means that you and I get to as well. Death, I believe that we just won. I believe we just won. Death is not now a monster, but just a doorway. It's toothless. 
because the resurrection of Jesus has made it so. Here's another thing we have to look forward to. A suffering that is useful. A suffering that is useful. I want you to look at verse 54. It says this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Paul writes, death gets swallowed up in victory. He uses this picture of of eating. Uh, Think about what happens when you eat something. You, you, You break it down bite by bite, right? You, you chomp it into smaller and smaller bits. Uh, then even in your mouth, uh, the chemicals in there begin to break the food down and then you ingest it, but the food is not gone, right? Eventually those fibers and those proteins and those nutrients in that food are all carried off into different parts of your body so that whatever you ate now becomes a part of you. It's part of your energy. It's part of your life. It enhances you. It is fuel for your existence. You are what they eat, what what you eat, as they say, right? You are what you eat. And so Paul is saying, death has been beaten. Death has been swallowed up by the resurrection of Christ. Death itself has been chewed up and broken apart and ingested. And it's not gone. It's still a thing. But now it's used. It's repurposed as fuel for life. Now, what does that mean? means this, that the resurrection isn't just a consolation ribbon for all of your suffering. The resurrection doesn't simply facilitate the removal of suffering at the end of time. No, no, no. It uses it. All of the suffering in your life, the resurrection takes away all the pain and all the trouble and all the suffering that you've endured in this life, and it will strip it for all of its usable parts, and it will turn it around back into something life-giving. Some of you know the the name Rick Warren. Uh, He and his wife Kay went through a devastating loss when their 27-year-old son Matthew took his own life. Uh, Matthew had battled depression and mental illness for years. And people, ever since that tragic event, have asked Rick Warren, how did you make it? How have you made it? How have you kept going through your pain? And his reply is always this. The answer is Easter. You see, he says, the death and the burial of resurrection of, and the resurrection of Jesus happened over three days. Friday was the day of suffering and pain and agony. And Saturday was the day of doubt and confusion and mystery and misery. But Easter, Easter, Sunday, was the day of hope and joy and victory. And, and here's the fact of life. He says this to whoever, whoever asks. He says, you will face these three days over and over in your life. And when you do, you'll find yourself asking, just like I did, three fundamental questions. Number one, what do I do on my days of pain? What do I do on my Fridays? Number two, how do I get through my days of doubt and confusion? How do I get through Saturday? Number three, how do I get to the days of joy and victory? How do I get to Sunday? And he says, the answer is Easter. The answer is always Easter. Because death is swallowed up in victory through the resurrection, 
our suffering becomes useful. Whatever it might be that pain and trouble have taken from you in this life, the resurrection swallows it up and it uses it so that it's better than it was before. I don't know what sin has taken from you in this life, but whatever it is, the resurrection will give it back in the end and better. The answer is Easter. Here's the third thing we have to look forward to in this life. A change that is suitable. A change that is suitable. I want you to look at verses 50 to 53. And if you notice, if you've been following along, we're kind of going backwards through the text. Uh, We're ending where we started. Verse 50 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you all a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Uh, will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Just like last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you you heard me just kind of slip into that passage anyway as I was reading this one. Uh, Paul, in that passage, gives us a hint of what will happen when Jesus comes back for us, and it's the same way here in this little description Paul says, two times, we will all be changed. And so that's important. And he means this, that there's something that has to happen to us before we are suitable for the eternity to come. We have to change. We could say it this way. We're not yet dressed for the occasion. Have you ever been there? You show up, everybody's in a suit and tie for the wedding, and you have cutoffs on, and, you know armless t-shirt a few months ago we spent uh the day in branson and uh we found our way to the ozark natural history museum now i know what you're thinking that sounds like doing math right uh but it wasn't it wasn't really i and i really can recommend a visit it's a history of the native americans in our country and this This one room that we went into, this particular exhibit, struck me so much that I had to get a picture, and I'll I'll show it to you. There's a whole room of the the fanciest, fully beaded dress clothes that Indians would wear. And they would especially wear this full dress attire when they went into battle, but it wasn't for the reasons that you might think. There's a plaque underneath um, these, uh, these pieces of clothing, and the plaque reads this way. The idea of full dress in preparation for a battle comes not from a belief that, will, that it will add to fighting ability. That's what we might have thought. No, the preparation is for death. In case that should be the result of the conflict. Here's the important sentence. Every Indian wants to look his best when he goes to meet the great spirit. So dressing up is done whether in imminent danger in an oncoming battle or a sickness or injury at times of peace. It will be an awful thing to be caught wearing the wrong thing when you meet God. And the Indians understood that. If you were to go into battle today and it went poorly, or if you were to get sick today and you didn't last until tomorrow, What would you be wearing 
when you meet God? How in the world will any of us ever be dressed rightly? I want you to look at Paul and what he says about our future. He writes, we shall all be changed. He writes, we will all be raised. We shall be changed a second time. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus comes back, that nobody on this earth will be wearing the right thing to meet God. There are not clothes anywhere that are suitable enough to meet God, but Jesus has done something about that. We shall be changed. Notice it's not us doing the changing. It's somebody else. It's God himself. Verse 53 says, the perishable body must put on the imperishable body. This mortal body must put on immortality. The bodies that we have right now have all of the limitations of our earthiness, right? They're, they're frail. They wear out. They run down. They are not suitable for the future world that Jesus has in mind. But the bodies that we're going to get, imperishable. They will never wear out. They will never run down. They'll have glory and honor and power. They will have every capacity for God's spirit. I love that thought. It will be a very physical body. We've talked about that. We talked about that last week. It will be more physical than ever. But it will be one that's finally suited for God's eternal kingdom. Joni Erickson Tata was 17 when she was in a diving accident and it left her a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. She, she was confined to a wheelchair and she's a devoted Christian. And when she's asked about heaven, uh, she shares what she's really looking forward to. In an interview, she said this, you look at me in this wheelchair, paralyzed for 52 years, and most people would think, oh, you're looking forward to your new body. And yeah, that's one of those fringe benefits. But what I'm looking forward to is the new heart. A heart free of manipulating others with precisely timed phrases. A heart free of fudging the truth. A heart free of hogging the spotlight, believing my own press releases. A heart free of not believing the best in others. A heart free of caving into fear and anxiety about the future. I can't wait to have a heart free of sin. A heart free of sin. That's what's waiting for us as believers. And it will happen when Jesus comes back in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, we will be changed. And so, what have we covered here? This is what we have to look forward to. A death that's toothless, a suffering that's useful, a change that's suitable. And there are all kinds of other things here in chapter 15. There's more than that, but that's a nice gulp of water for some thirsty souls today. And so I want you to look at what all of this means for us. I want you to go to the end, verse 58. Paul says, therefore, therefore. Now we know that when there's a therefore, you have to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore, yes. And here's what Paul says. Since we have a death that's toothless, since we have suffering that's going to be made useful, since we have a change that, uh, that's, that makes us suitable because those thing, things are certainties in the future to come for us, then we have right now today, therefore we have right now today a life that is full. A life that is full. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Someone once asked Martin Luther, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Now I want to press pause on that just for a second, and I want you to ask yourself that question. What would you do today if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Now, if there's not an immediate thing that pops into your head, then just don't answer it because it won't be as good as Martin Luther's. Here's what he says. He said this, if I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I'd plant a tree. Martin Luther said about if Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I would plant a tree. Why, why would he, why, why, why do you say that? He said this, because in the kingdom, trees are going to grow better than they do now. When Jesus comes back, trees are going to dance. They're going to blossom in ways that we can't imagine. Trees, when Jesus comes back, are going to sing. When Jesus comes back and the eternal kingdom of God begins, they're going to be infinitely more than they are right now. And so if that were to happen tomorrow, I'd plant a tree today. Now think about that. That's not your answer, right? That's not my answer. Because if Jesus is coming back tomorrow, my bet is that all of our answers would be some version of scrambling around to find the things that we've left undone and to do them really quickly as fast as we can because Jesus is coming tomorrow. That's what I would do. I think that's what most of you would do. We would never think about starting something absolutely new. And our response means that Luther understands Paul and we don't. Luther understands that if you don't believe in anything past this life, then you have no choice but to hurry and get to all the things that you've never done. But if you do believe that there is something after this life, if you do believe he is risen, say it with me, he is risen indeed, right? If we believe that, then planting a tree is perfectly appropriate. And so is alleviating poverty today. And so is undoing injustice today and so is healing people and serving people and loving people and showing compassion and doing work in the name of the risen savior because all of that labor all of that effort will last into the next world it will have ripple effects through all eternity there is a material newness that is coming to us and we are invited to work with god to bring it about. Now, do you remember where we started in all of this? We started with this psychologist who said, here's, here's, how, here's why I think depression comes. It's the belief that your actions today are futile. 
has Paul just told us? What have we just gone through? He's told us why our actions today will never come up empty-handed. They'll never be futile because we have a certainty about what tomorrow will bring. He is given. He is given empty-handed. So maybe, maybe solving depression in this world is probably too big of a monster that we can do. And yet, with our hope in a living Savior who is coming back for us, can we certainly keep depression at arm's length? Absolutely. Because we have a hope, we have a certainty about our future. And so today, we do work that matters. certain hope in him shape every step that we take and every word that we speak and everything that we do all the people said i want you to know how this text ends not in your english version but in the greek if you look at the greek there are two words that end the whole chapter and those words are simply in It's as if Paul has laid out this whole argument for the hope that we have and he's reserved the emphasis for the end as to who this hope is for. It's not for everybody. It's for those who are in Christ. The seed that is planted determines the plant that will grow. If you're in the crowd you and you, you plant stuff in a garden, you know that if you plant beans, you, you can't get corn. It doesn't work like that. You can't plant a non-Christian in the ground and expect to have a Christian resurrection. We reap what we sow. Only those who believe that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, only those people who have trusted in that work that Jesus has done, only those in Christ get to anticipate a toothless death and a useful suffering and a change that will make them more themselves than they ever thought possible. Only those who are in Christ. Is that you today? Are you in Christ? Because that's the only way that true living sing a song, and I'm going to give Daniel his microphone back, and I'm going to stand right here. And maybe today, you need to decide, I want to be in Christ, and if that's your decision, you come, and let's talk.